trigger warning. This episode may trigger you because we talk about guns and there are triggers on guns. It also contains originalism. The Second Amendment was one of the least scrutinized provisions of the Bill of Rights until the latter half of the 20th century. With its prefatory and operative clauses, its references to the people, but also a well-regulated militia, it was a prime target for interpretation by judges. Why, then, did it take more than 200 years for the Supreme Court to resolve the meaning of that amendment? When the court finally took up a case, Justice Scalia, the famed originalist, wrote the majority opinion. But the primary dissenter, Justice Stevens, did something surprising. He took on Scalia on his own turf and produced an originalist opinion that came to the opposite conclusion. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're looking at District of Columbia versus Heller. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Picture a crowded bar in Georgetown in the spring of 2002. In a corner, two straight-laced scholarly types are huddled together deep in conversation. They're discussing a recent appeals court decision that broke from decades of precedent. That court held, unlike any before, that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. For decades, though, courts construed the somewhat confusing language to protect a collective right, the right of individuals to band together to form a militia and bear arms for that purpose. The men, both public interest lawyers, thought the time was right to press the individual rights view of the Second Amendment up to the Supreme Court. Drawing inspiration from Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP's strategy for toppling school segregation, the men agreed strategic litigation was necessary. You'd need law-abiding, sympathetic clients, an extreme law, and the right court to have a shot at success. They set to work, and just six years later, light speed for making constitutional law, the Supreme Court issued a landmark ruling. But it wouldn't have been possible without the development and spread of a judicial methodology focused on text and history. You see, dear dissidents, the story of District of Columbia versus Heller is intertwined with the story of originalism. So, what is originalism? We turn to legal journalist David Latt. I see it as an interpretive theory that a text should be interpreted in a way consistent with its original public meaning, meaning how it would have been understood at the time that it was written uh, or enacted. This may sound like a common sense way to approach the law, but when the methodology was developed, it was revolutionary. As Justice Scalia explained in an interview with Charlie Rose in 2008. 20 years ago, uh, originalism was nowhere to be found in the law schools. It was not even considered worth discussing by the law professors. They, they were so uniformly uh, in, the, in the other camp. And that's not the case anymore. There are originalists at a number of, uh, of prominent law school faculties. Not as many as, as, the, other, as the other view, but that's understandable. The other view is enormously attractive to judges because it, it empowers them to do good things. I mean, they're not wicked people. They have a view of what ought to be. And uh, this view of the living constitution enables them to say, well, since it ought to be, it is. As David noted, For such an influential theory, originalism, at least labeled as such, is 
relatively young. It rose to prominence in the 1980s with Robert Bork, the law professor turned judge turned unsuccessful Supreme Court nominee. And he very much focused on original intent, the intent of the people who wrote or drafted or promulgated a particular amendment. Uh, Ed Meese, the former attorney general, was also very much active in, in advocating for originalism. Originalism, I think, really became super popular and influential thanks to the writing of the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who moved it more in the direction of original meaning or original understanding. So not what subjectively is going on in the heads of the framers or the enactors, but rather how would those words have been understood at the time that they were drafted. Two decades later, it's been adopted by judges, lawyers, and academics across the country and across the ideological spectrum. In the words of Elena Kagan, then a nominee for the Supreme Court, We are all originalists. There's some debate over how aggressively to read her comments, but it's no doubt true that original meaning is so much more important to the court today than it was, say, during the Warren Court. So is originalism perfect? No. But as David says, Uh, I agree with Justice Scalia, who essentially said originalism is the best we've got. It's like what Winston Churchill said about democracy. It's the worst form of government except for all the others. And as Paul Clement, a Supreme Court litigator and former law clerk to Justice Scalia, put it. Originalism, like almost any methodology of interpreting the Constitution, requires some hard hard work. And it doesn't answer every question 100% definitively. Um, You know, I don't think Justice Scalia would have ever made a claim that originalism provides an easy and irrefutable answer to every question in constitutional law. But I think his view would be that it does ultimately provide some answers, and maybe even more importantly, it constrains the playing field of what people can reasonably disagree about. And in that way, I think it limits the discretion of judges to just sort of project their own personal preferences into the Constitution and then say, whoa, guess what? The Constitution agrees with me. Compared to other methods of judging, Paul said. If the standard is, you know, evolving standards of decency, um, you know, anybody can disagree um, just because they have a different sense of, of sort of decency, where if, you know, whereas if the methodology causes you to focus on text and history in a few relatively narrow periods of history, that are relevant, not just because the justices are pretending to be historians, but because the history in particular time periods informs the meaning of the text, you know, that that constrains the universe of relevant materials in a way that I think makes it a lot easier for people to understand what the judges are doing as judging and not just sort of politics by, by, by people in robes. Some skeptics say originalism produces Republican outcomes. Here's what David had to say about that. Originalism is a methodology, so it's not inherently aligned with conservatism or liberalism or progressivism. It's not inherently aligned with Republican politics or Democratic politics. I do think some defenders of originalism, though, overstate the case of it being results blind or being not necessarily conservative. Here's why. To the extent that conservatism is backward-looking, at least focused on preserving the past or the status quo, as opposed to progressivism, which is forward-looking, if you focus on original meaning, which by definition came out in the past, 
you will reflect the values of the past a little bit more. And if those are the values being, quote unquote, conserved by conservatism, then maybe originalism has a little bit of a thumb on the scale. So that's originalism. Now on to the Second Amendment. Second Amendment wasn't always the red-hot political issue it is today. We're building a movement right now. End gun violence! Stand for us or beware, the voters are coming! So how do we get here? I think it's important to start by recognizing that so many issues have become intensely polarized over the last 30 years. That's Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School and author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. But back to Adam. What we've had in America is a resorting of the political parties in ways whereas there used to be both liberal and conservative wings of both political parties. Now there really isn't. The liberals are in one party. The uh, conservatives are in another party. The libertarians just don't kind of quite, quite fit anywhere, but uh, tend to side with the conservatives. Uh, and so we really had uh, increasing part- partisan polarization uh, on big issues more generally. On the issue of guns specifically, um, I think that the gun control or gun safety movement Um, was pretty extreme in the 1970s, arguing for complete bans on handguns and trying to move the nation towards um, uh, disarmament, civilian disarmament. But they uh, lost, and they lost pretty badly. And in the last 50 years, what we've really seen is, uh, in replace of an extreme gun safety movement, we've seen the gun safety movement move towards the moderate middle, no longer advancing civilian disarmament, no longer advancing bans on handguns, I don't think it was that Miller had some sort of uh, uh, real influence in and of itself. He's referring to United States versus Miller, a Supreme Court case decided in 1939. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. But for uh, most of the 20th century, there just wasn't a very strong gun rights movement, not until really the 1970s. And the 1970s started to change. The social movement in favor of gun rights became stronger. And that social movement was led by the NRA a social movement that grew into a political powerhouse and a lifestyle. At the NRA's annual meeting in 2000, actor and NRA president Charlton Heston held aloft a flintlock rifle and declared, I want to say those fighting words for everyone within the sound of my voice, to hear and to heed, and especially for you, Mr. Gore. From my cold, dead hands. And what about the scholarship? Trigger warning. In this part, we talk about the scholarship that led the court to strike down a law that basically banned guns, which have triggers. As Adam explained, we could date back the change really to 1965. That's when things really started to change. The American Bar Association sponsors an essay competition on constitutional law issues every year. And that year, uh, 1965, the question was, what does the Second Amendment, guaranteeing the right of the people to keep and bear arms, mean? In case you don't have a pocket constitution handy, the Second Amendment provides a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That well-regulated militia part is known as the prefatory clause, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is the operative clause. 
How these two provisions interact became the focus of a lot of scholarship in the latter half of the 20th century. But back to Adam and the ABA's essay contest. And the winning essay was written by a guy named Robert Sprecher. And he argued that the original meaning of the Second Amendment had been lost and that the founding fathers had sought to secure not only the right to arm a state militia, but also the right of the individual to keep and bear arms for personal self-protection. And uh, Sprecher's essay was really sort of the first in what would be an explosion of scholarship um, advancing the individual rights position. Not everybody agrees, though. As Clark Neely, a Cato Institute scholar, recalled. Essentially, there's no real meaningful scholarship on the on Second Amendment. Um, no effort to, to look into its history or to you know, identify um, uh, or, or sort of grapple with the, the text of it until um, uh, Don Cates, who wasn't even really an academic. He was sort of an autodidact, um, brilliant man. Um, and he, you know, he publishes this article um, in 1983 in the Michigan Law Review. Um, and, and, and the title of the article is uh, Handgun Prohibition and the Original Meaning uh, of the Second Amendment comes out in 1983. And he pretty much provides a, an originalist tour de force um, <clears throat> about the, 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 you know, the, the sort of the originalist um, meaning uh, of the Second Amendment. Whether it was Don Cates or Robert Sprecher, either way, as Clark put it, it's like the floodgates open. I kind of, part of me wonders maybe if it's because, um, you know, this is 10% of the Bill of Rights and it's essentially um, a blank slate for uh, academic research and commentary. And so uh, suddenly it's almost as if it's both um, respectable and interesting to begin, you know, kind of interrogating the Second Amendment, so to speak. Suddenly there's a torrent of scholarship. Don Cates just kind of uh, marshaled uh, this scholarly and historical, uh, you know, reservoir of information. And what I think was so kind of uh, remarkable about it was that um, just no one had bothered before and everybody was surprised that it was such a rich, um, you know, kind of trove of material. The floodgates were open with the scholarly consensus pointing toward the individual rights view of the Second Amendment. But what happened in the courts? To start, there was that 1939 case, United States versus Miller. And what did the Supreme Court say about the Second Amendment in Miller? David Ladd explained. The court found that owning a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun was not protected. And in Miller, the court said unanimously, uh, in the absence of evidence that possession or use of a uh, that type of shotgun has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. The holding wasn't entirely clear, though, as Paul Clement put it. Well, what the court held is, uh, you know, a bit of a continuing mystery, I suppose. There wasn't a lot of federal regulation of firearms until, uh, you know, the late 20s, early 30s, when they passed the, the law that precipitated the challenge in Miller. So they, they basically tried to levy a prohibitory tax on uh, sawed-off shotguns and machine guns, and the, the they prosecuted you know two individuals who certainly I think it was alleged that were involved in kind of you know underworld activities, and so they weren't very attractive uh, kind of defendants for vindicating Second Amendment rights. The defendants, Jack Miller and Frank Layton, were members of the infamous O'Malley Gang, which was responsible for a number of bank robberies throughout the Southwest and Midwest in the early 1930s. Here's more from Paul. And, and, and indeed, um, through, for reasons I'm not entirely sure of all the details about, 
they actually didn't even file a brief in the Supreme Court of the United States. The only brief that was filed in the Miller case was filed by the United States. And I think that may, you know, explain why Miller is such a kind of like opaque and short uh, decision, because, you know, in, 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 in the current day, in comparable circumstances, the Supreme Court would have absolutely appointed an amicus and gotten a clash of views and, you know, had a, had, had a much more meaningful kind of exchange. But, you know, back in the day, they just sort of did this on the, on the government's brief. And the basic, you know, the argument that the government made there was effectively twofold. One, they did make the kind of collective rights argument um, and said, look, it, it, you know, Miller and his co-defendant really have no argument here at all because the Second Amendment doesn't protect an individual right. And then the government said that even if there is an individual right, it doesn't allow you to possess any kind of weapon under the sun. And, you know, these, you know, sawed off shotguns and machine guns are the kind of weapons that, you know, are not protected by the Second Amendment. There's a little bit that seems supportive of the idea that it's a collective right, but there's also language that really seems more focused on what kinds of arms are protected by the Second Amendment. And like I said, it ends up being a little bit of a, of a mush. And that's why some circuits go ahead and read it as embracing the collective rights view. What happened after Miller? Well, there's not a lot to talk about there, Elizabeth, because as you know, the Supreme Court decided the Miller case uh, in the 1930s and, uh, and then you know, effectively took uh, the next seven or eight decades off. Um, and so that created quite a gap. And in the interim, most of the lower courts, not all of them, but most of the lower courts interpreted the Supreme Court's Miller decision as embracing the so-called collective rights view of the Second Amendment, which was really just a kind of clever way of reading the amendment out of the Constitution entirely, because it, it didn't protect uh, an individual right in the view of, you know, nine or 10 circuits. So it was a pretty, pretty widely held view. Uh, but, but the effect of that widely held view is it really put a limit on how much Second Amendment litigation there was even in the lower courts, because the issue is foreclosed in most of the circuits. And that was it for nearly six decades. Then, in 1997, in Prince v. United States, there was a fleeting reference to the individual rights view. The court was evaluating the constitutionality of the Brady Bill's requirement that state officers perform background checks on firearms purchasers, and ultimately the court held this improperly commandeered states in violation of the Tenth Amendment. The case really had nothing to do with the Second Amendment. It was all about the balance of power between states and the federal government. But in a concurrence, listen to what Justice Clarence Thomas said. This court has not had recent occasion to consider the nature of the substantive right safeguarded by the Second Amendment. If, however, the Second Amendment is read to confer a personal right to keep and bear arms, a colorable argument exists that the federal government's regulatory scheme, at least as it pertains to the purely interstate sale or possession of firearms, runs afoul of that amendment's protections. Justice Thomas continued, Perhaps, at some future date, this court will have the opportunity to determine whether Justice Story was correct when he wrote that the right to bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic. Marshalling an impressive array of historical evidence, a growing body of scholarly commentary indicates that the right to keep and bear arms is, as the amendment's text suggests, a personal right. Adam Winkler recalled the reaction to Thomas's concurrence. There was a sense among the legal community that Thomas's concurrence and his interest in the Second Amendment did sort of come out of nowhere. 
Um, it wasn't a Second Amendment case, although it did deal with guns. Um, but Thomas has written many, many dissents or concurring, concurring opinions over the time that he's been on the Supreme Court um, that were seen as idiosyncratic and sort of out of nowhere. He's not been shy about articulating positions that might be taken by the mainstream of legal thought to be a little bit off the wall. And a few years later... Well, in 2001, the Fifth Circuit heard the case of the United States versus Emerson, and it was a challenge to a federal law that banned the transportation of firearms in interstate commerce by anyone who was subject to a court order whose terms prohibited the use of physical force against an intimate partner or child. And uh, the majority opinion in that case was written by Judge William Lockhart Garwood, uh, who offered a lengthy defense of the idea that the Second Amendment guaranteed an individual right to have firearms for personal protection that was not associated with militia service. The Emerson ruling came out just, uh, I guess, a few months after uh, the George W. Bush administration had issued a letter to the NRA saying that the Department of Justice believed that the Second Amendment protected an individual right. Uh, despite going at length uh, and detailing the history uh, of how to understand the Second Amendment, uh, the Fifth Circuit also upheld the law challenged in that case. That brings us back to that smoky bar in Georgetown in the spring of 2002. Just months after the Emerson decision came out, Clark Neely was out with some of his Institute for Justice colleagues talking about the state of the law and strategizing. My recollection of, of it is that one of us sort of said, well, geez, you know, now it seems pretty likely that uh, the, the Second Amendment is on a fast track uh, to the Supreme Court. And it, it sure is concerning that that one way that it could get there would be, you know, in criminal litigation. Maybe somebody who held up a liquor store or carjacked somebody said, oh, you know, I shouldn't have done that, but I had a Second Amendment right to the gun that I, I used. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of us said, man, it would it sure would be smart if somebody would put together a public interest type challenge in order to try to prevent that from happening. And, you know, who knows if this really happened, but I do have this image of the two of us looking at each other and realizing like, hey, we're public interest lawyers. And that other lawyer Clark mentioned just so happens to be our PLF colleague, Steve Simpson. A small team quickly banded together, and they set their sights on the District of Columbia. There were two really important aspects or, or, or features of D.C. That, that made it the right place to bring this case. One was that uh, the D.C. Circuit was one of the only circuits that had not weighed in yet, so we weren't up against negative precedent. Um, and then second, uh, D.C. itself had the most sweeping um, gun regulations uh, of any jurisdiction in the country. D.C.'s law virtually banned the possession of handguns and required residents to keep any lawfully owned firearms unloaded and disassembled or bound by a trigger lock in their home. Clark and the team found six plaintiffs willing to sue, including Shelley Parker, a black woman who endured repeated break-in attempts at her home. And... We had, of course, Dick Heller, who was a private security guard, an armed um, private security guard here in D.C. Um, Tom Palmer, an openly gay man, was almost murdered by a skinhead mob. And he uh, claims, uh, I believe quite credibly, that he saved his life. by uh, He had a, a pistol that he brandished at this, uh, this skinhead mob. So we had a really diverse and, I think, um, you know, very appealing um, set of public interest plaintiffs. 
The complaint was filed in the D.C. Federal District Court in February 2003. The district judge ruled for the city, and on appeal, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit sided with the challengers. The court found that the law ran afoul of the Second Amendment, which protects an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. And the case quickly made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices granted the city's petition for review and heard oral argument in March 2008. Then, on June 26, 2008, the court issued its decision. Justice Scalia also has our opinion this morning in case 07290, District of Columbia versus Heller. Here's Justice Scalia. We hold that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to have and use arms for self-defense in the home and that the district's handgun ban, as well as its requirement that firearms in the home be rendered inoperative, violates that right. We conclude, after examining many uses of keep arms and bear arms contemporaneous with and prior to the adoption of the Second Amendment, that it means pretty much what it means today, to have and carry weapons. Those old sources refute the notion that bear arms alone or keep and bear arms in combination has an exclusively military connotation. To be sure, when one was a soldier, he bore arms, but one could bear arms without being a soldier. The same conclusion that the phrase does not refer to military service is demanded by the fact that it was universally understood that the Second Amendment incorporated into the federal constitution a pre-existing right of Englishmen set forth in the 1689 English Bill of Rights. That's why it reads, shall not be infringed. The right shall not be infringed, referring to a pre-existing right. And everybody agrees with that. There is no doubt that the English right was an individual right to have and carry arms. If the people cannot have arms, there will be no people's militia. That perception is what joins the two, part of the two parts of the Second Amendment. Turning to United States versus Miller, Scalia said, It is entirely clear that the court's basis for saying that the Second Amendment did not prevent the conviction was not that the defendants were bearing arms privately rather than in a militia. Rather, it was that the type of weapon at issue was not eligible for Second Amendment protection. Miller stands only for the proposition that the Second Amendment right, whatever its nature, extends only to certain types of weapons. Undoubtedly, some think that the Second Amendment is outmoded in a society where our standing army is the pride of our nation, where well-trained police forces provide personal security, and where gun violence is a serious problem. That is perhaps debatable. But what is not debatable is that it is not the role of this court to pronounce the Second Amendment extinct. Justices John Paul Stevens and Stephen Breyer both wrote dissents. We're going to focus on Stevens' dissent. Here's Justice Stevens. The fact that uh, an individuals may enforce the right protected by the Second Amendment tells us nothing about the scope of the right. Guns are used to hunt, for self-defense, to commit crimes, for sporting activities, and to perform military duties. The Second Amendment plainly does not protect the right to use a gun to rob a bank. It is equally clear that it does encompass the right to use weapons for certain military purposes. 
whether it also protects the right to, to possess and use guns for non-military purposes, like hunting and personal self-defense, is the question presented by this case. Starting with the text, Stevens argued for the narrower militia-related reading of the amendment. It is the most natural reading of the 27-word text. That text protects the right to keep and bear arms and makes no mention of any non-military use of a firearm. It protects the pre-existing right to use guns by members of a militia. Stevens noted that James Madison, who drafted the Second Amendment, and the other framers, considered and rejected proposals similar to those contained in some contemporary state constitutions, which the majority opinion quotes at length, which would have protected non-military uses of weapons. Thus, a fair analysis of the original intent of the framers of the amendment supports the narrower reading. Turning to United States versus Miller, Stevens said, No previously unavailable historical evidence has surfaced since 1939 when Miller was described, decided, nor does the court rely on any such evidence as a basis for distinguishing Miller and making new law, and it is making new law today. In our view, there is no untouchable constitutional right guaranteed by the Second Amendment to keep loaded handguns in the house in urban areas. It was only a few years after the decision in Miller that Justice Frankfurter wrote his famous opinion warning of the perils of this country, of this courts into a entry into a political thicket. The political thicket that the court has decided to enter today is different from, but no less controversial than the one that concerned Justice Frankfurter a genuine judicial conservative. What impact the court's totally unnecessary entry into this entanglement will have on the ongoing debate between the advocates and opponents of gun control, and indeed on this court's role as a guardian of the rule of law, is a matter that will be debated by future historians at length. It is, however, clear to us that adherence to a policy of judicial restraint would be far wiser than the bold decision announced today. Justice Stephen Breyer also wrote a dissent. David Latt suggested, It's a route that Justice Stevens could have gone down. He didn't, but he could have done it. I think he wanted to beat Justice Scalia at his own game, in a sense. But he very much could have just gone the Justice Breyer route and talked about gun atrocities for pages and pages and said that we should have some kind of balancing test. Unpacking these opinions, Paul Clement noted that Scalia's opinion starts with the text. He eventually gets into this long historical discussion about the individual right and the way it was understood in England before the founding in America, immediately after the founding in America, before the Reconstruction Amendments, and you know even thereafter. But all of that is set up by really focusing on the text of the Second Amendment explaining his view of the relationship between the prefatory clause and the operative clause. And, and, I, and I do think in that sense, you know, it really is an opinion that sort of beautifully captures his approach to uh, constitutional interpretation, kind of this text-based approach that, that uses history, but not kind of history in some sort of abstract way that's separated from the text, but uses the history to inform 
what were the framers thinking? What, what were the people who ratified the Constitution and ratified the Bill of Rights? What did they understand the words to mean? And I think it's a wonderful opinion to study to sort of capture Justice Scalia's constitutional interpretation. The prefatory clause, Paul explained. It's a little unusual, uh, but it's not unprecedented by any way, shape, or form. A lot of state constitutions had provisions that were structured similarly. And in no instance was the point of the prefatory clause to negate the principal thrust of the operative clause. The prefatory clause helps us understand why the framers wanted to include the operative clause in the Constitution. And it can help us understand the operative clause. But the real work here uh, and what we really need to focus on is the operative clause, because that's the clause that does the real substantive work here, as opposed to just telling us kind of what the end that the framers were on about when they included the text in the operative clause in the Bill of Rights. But as David explained, I think it's totally fair to see Heller as about whether the right to bear arms is individual or collective. But it's interesting that Justice Stevens opens his dissent by saying, this is not about whether the right is individual or collective, but it's about the scope of the right. Because in his view, the right to bear arms is individual in the sense, in the sense that we're talking about individuals having guns. The question is, is it a right for individual self-defense or is it a right to have a gun in connection with militia service? So I think that is an important difference. And how did Stevens read the prefatory clause? He looks at language and he says, well, what's the point of this prefatory clause if not to limit the scope of the right to militia service? One argument that I think textualists and originalists often use is the argument against surplusage. In other words, you shouldn't have surplus language. Language in uh, law should be serving a purpose. And what's the point of this prefatory clause if it's not really tying the right to bear arms to militia service? Then Justice Stevens looks at analogous provisions in state constitutions, and here he points out that a number of them explicitly mention an individual right of self-defense unconnected to military service. What this says is, look, people around this time knew how to draft a provision that was about individual self-defense. They didn't do so here. Turning to the operative clause, David said. So with Justice Scalia, when he looks at the language, which refers to, quote, the right of the people... He notes that other references in the Constitution to the right of the people, like the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment, refer to individual rights. So he says it's logical to think that's the case here as well. Then Justice Scalia looks at similar provisions in state constitutions from around the time of the Second Amendment, some that came a little before, some that came a little after. And almost all of these provided for an individual right. So he argues it will be unlikely for the Second Amendment to be an outlier. Paul Clement added, I think he would say in the main, um, you know, this is the language the Constitution uses to protect an individual right. And that's true of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment. It's, you know, true to a degree of the Ninth Amendment, the text there. Here's what Adam had to say. I think one of the persuasive points that's really made by Justice Scalia's majority opinion is to recognize that there is a long history and tradition Uh, of legal commentators and advocates and others who saw the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right to bear arms. That idea was deep in American law. Um, uh, In my own research, I found that it was especially prominent in the state 
in the states when dealing with state constitutional law. There's almost every state has in its own constitution an individual right to bear arms provision, and those provisions have been interpreted to recognize an individual right for many, many, many decades, going back to the early 1800s. So I think there is uh, the Scalia was right that there is a long history and tradition of recognizing an individual right to bear arms. Moving to the keep and bear language, Paul remarked. It's funny, there's there's a battle between the majority and the dissent over who's kind of has the mantle of trying to kind of read words out of the Constitution or read words in the constitutional text to be superfluous. Because, you know, Justice Stevens first accuses Justice Scalia of reading the prefatory clause out of the Constitution. And Justice Scalia, you know, has his response to that, which is to say, I'm not reading it out of the Constitution. It just doesn't it's not an operative clause, so its role is important, but still limited. And then when you get to the keep and bear arms discussion, the, the roles are kind of flipped, and Justice Scalia is, you know, essentially accusing Justice Stevens of kind of reading, you know, a whole right out of the Constitution by collapsing the two. So how did Stevens read to keep and bear arms? As David explained. Justice Stevens sees the Second Amendment right as what you could say is a unitary right, the right to keep and bear arms. Linguistically, he points out that they are both modified by two, the infinitive here. It's not to keep and to bear arms, but Justice Stevens argues to keep and bear arms. And so in a way, he almost sees it as a term of art uh, to keep and bear arms in order to participate in a militia. And what did Scalia say to that? Justice Scalia, you know, you know, response on that is to break down the words to show that they do have sort of you know, different meanings, but also to kind of underscore that when it comes to kind of constitutional text, um, you know, we generally don't sort of mush stuff together and minimize what's protected. And he also emphasizes that it's not particularly unusual in our constitutional text to have more than one right. Uh, protected in a single am- amendment. I mean, you know, many of our most important sort of rights as citizens are all in the First Amendment, from free exercise of religion to petitioning the government to free speech. But you know, they're all in there together, and they're all understood as being separate rights. And I think his argument is the Second Amendment should be no different. As Clark pointed out, I think the biggest distinction between the Scalia opinion, majority opinion, and the Stevens dissent is that the Scalia opinion described a coherent theory of the Second Amendment and Justice Stevens didn't. It is, I defy anybody to read Justice Stevens' dissenting opinion and come up with any coherent explanation of like, what is it exactly that you could get into court and do with the Second Amendment? Right at the front, he says, surely the Second Amendment protects a right that can be enforced by individuals but but there's like he never delivers on that at least at least as far as I can tell I can't I, I read that opinion probably a dozen times and I still can't figure out any case that could be brought uh, plausibly uh, under uh, his theory of of the Second Amendment um, and I think that really undermines the persuasiveness of the opinion when you're left wondering well why did these people put the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights and like what is this going to help anybody? To do, and when would you be able to assert this, uh, and in what context? The dissent wasn't the last word from Justice Stevens on the Second Amendment. 
Writing in The Atlantic in 2019, he declared Heller, quote, unquestionably the most clearly incorrect decision that the Supreme Court announced during my tenure on the bench. The majority's, quote, twin failure, he continued, first, the misreading of the intended meaning of the Second Amendment, and second, the failure to respect settled precedent represents the worst self-inflicted wound in the court's history. Stevens went on to explain why he chose to emphasize the original meaning of the amendment, but as David Latt pointed out, He wonders whether he should have stressed, quote, the human aspects of the issue, end quote, uh, emphasizing the hundreds, thousands of Americans who have died because of guns. Uh, And he wonders especially whether he should have tried to press that point with Justice Kennedy, because it's really interesting. And he talks about how he's trying to get Justice Kennedy and Justice Thomas to go along with him. And he points out that Justice Kennedy might have been sympathetic to these human elements because Justice Kennedy is, was often sympathetic to those elements, whether it was marriage equality and he was feeling um, bad for uh, LGBT Americans who couldn't marry or abortion. And he, he sees human elements on both sides. Uh, he often was persuaded by these human elements. And so Justice Stevens wonders, hmm, in trying to get Justice Kennedy to go along, should I have talked more about gun deaths? That's not the road Stevens chose. And his interpretation of the text and history didn't garner a majority. Trigger warning. This section doesn't actually have any triggers, but it does have more originalism. In the end, would we have had Heller without originalism? Here's Clark. I think it would have been absolute folly to try to bring the Heller case uh, before uh, the advent of the originalist scholarship that, that articulated not only a coherent, but I think a very powerful uh, originalist explanation for the meaning of the Second Amendment. I think Heller will stand for the ages as one of the most powerful examples of originalist interpretation and originalist scholarship. But not everyone agrees. I think much more important than originalism was the rise of the social movement in favor of gun rights that we saw in America beginning in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and continuing on to this day. A social movement that's been incredibly active in politics and in culture and articulating a vision of the Second Amendment uh, that made space for an individual right uh, to bear arms. Um, And so what I would say is that you could have had the Heller ruling without originalism. But you don't have the Heller ruling without that social movement that has changed Americans' understandings of the Second Amendment. From Paul's perspective. This was a case where kind of all nine justices really had no choice but to be originalists because there was no option. You know, in lots of other cases, there's 100 years of case law and you just didn't have that in the context of the Second Amendment. And so it really kind of forced Justice Stevens, I think, to, to be an originalist um, and to try to engage with Justice Scalia on Justice Scalia's own terms and own turf. And I think it's fascinating in that respect. Whether the ruling could have happened without the adoption of originalism, as David put it. It's not originalism versus purposivism or originalism versus living constitutionalism. It's originalism versus originalism. It's just such a rich set of opinions. They go on for more than 150 pages and they have all these dueling footnotes. And it's sort of like fodder for a masterclass in originalism if you want to teach people how this 
theory works. So I think it's a very educational opinion, and I would urge people to look back at it. Trigger warning. This is the part where we tee up the sequel, which will definitely have more triggers. District of Columbia versus Heller was just the start. Clark Neely recalled the day the decision came out. He, Alan Gura, who argued the case, and the rest of the Heller team were at the Supreme Court waiting for a decision. So we were, we were there. We were sitting on the front row of the attorney section and got to listen to Justice Scalia read the opinion. Of course, we're very excited. And uh, we got to do that thing where you walk out the front door of the Supreme Court down the steps to the giant scrum of reporters, you know, and you get to do the interview with your clients and everything. And I have an, a vivid recollection of, of hearing Alan uh, talking on his cell phone and looking over my shoulder. And he was literally instructing his local counsel in the McDonald case to file the complaint less than 20 minutes after the Heller decision came down. Two years later, in McDonald versus Chicago, the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment applies against state governments in addition to the federal government. A decade later, the Supreme Court is now considering whether the Second Amendment protects a right to keep and bear arms outside of the home. And both sides in that case have marshaled historical evidence, arguing that not only the text, but history and tradition support their view. So what comes next for the Second Amendment? It's a risky business trying to predict what the Supreme Court will do. But we'd suggest cracking open a history book because when it comes to guns, we are all originalists now. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Oh, and don't forget, Justice Breyer had a dissent uh, also, which isn't really originalist. And he proposes some kind of balancing task. And certainly a bit more nuanced than Justice Scalia saying, I would put a bag over my head before (laughs) I joined the majority opinion. My computer's really freaking out, man. Uh, One of your judges, right? (laughs) Well, yes, yes. Uh, The the fact that I gave him a shout out is not entirely coincidental. I did put (laughs) Sorry, I think I haven't restarted my computer in like three years. You know how when that happens, your computer kind of goes berserk. It's like he wants it to say to keep and to bear, to have and to hold. And that's, you know, uh, just an extra an extra word that didn't need to be there. Like my whole keyboard isn't working. It's really freaking out. It's going like you should see it. It's possessed. Maybe if I... Hmm. I guess I could just keep it here, possessed. I'm one of these West Coast liberals, you know. I've got like <laughs> fancy single malt scotches, and not only None that, that for I, think, me. I think I've got some. I've got some uh, CBD drinks too. So you oh. know. It's <laughs> oh wow! Definitely in Cali. Like things keep pop. It's like somebody. It's like it's ghost. You know when it ghost ghost keyboards. It's ghost keyboarding. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a term. It's an actual term. It's like when someone's, pu- it's a term because it's happened to me before. It's like when someone's pushing the keyboard, but no one is. Mm-hmm. Look it up, Grant. <laughs> but we'd suggest crapping. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> we'd suggest taking a crap. Okay. But, um, 
you know, I had to get up on that soapbox. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> Do you need to restart your computer? Probably, but I really don't want to. I mean, if it's going to keep popping up every couple minutes, this is going to take us a really long time. <laughs> well, I'm hoping I'm currently problem solving in case. Yeah, I probably should restart. I prob- I think that's the best thing. See okay. you in a minute. Um, I we'll get those emphatically, over emphatically support that new swag. <laughs> I think that'd be fantastic. It would be an honor to drink whiskey out of a I descent uh, tumbler. So I look forward to it. <laughs>